I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self-actuating. I'm Claire Salmi. I'm Cole Wozniak. And I'm Fiona Hatch. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. This is 1050 Bascom. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we're excited to welcome Noah Stengel, a PhD candidate in political science, to the podcast. Noah received his BA in political science and economics from UW-Madison in 2017 and taught a seminar in environmental political thought last term. We'll ask Noah about his class as well as talk to him a little bit about his own academic background from being a poli-sci badger undergrad to a doctoral candidate studying political theory in the department now. So, welcome to the podcast, Noah. Uh, We'll start with a little bit of background of how you got started in terms of the majors that you chose to study at UW-Madison. So did you come to UW knowing that you wanted to pursue majors in political science and econ? And what made you focus on political theory as a guidepost for your graduate studies? Okay, well, first let me say thank you for having me on. I am a big fan of podcasts, so this is a dream contributor to be on one. So I, yeah, I came to UW in fall of 2013 as a freshman, and um, I didn't know what I wanted to study. My favorite class in high school was English. Um, I really enjoyed textual interpretation, literary uh, analysis, things like that. Um, So I had, I think, a broad interest in the humanities or the social sciences. I think I even remember being on a phone call with who would become my future boss because I had a, a job here when I was a student. And he was like, oh, what, you know, what do you want to major in? And I said, well, you know, philosophy or history or political science or, or, or English. And, you know, the list kind of went on and on, but it was generally in those spaces. I was in a FIG uh, freshman year, fall of freshman year, a first year interest group called the American Democratic Experiment. And it was composed of a, a history lecture, History 101, basically, uh, American founding through the Civil War, and two political theory classes. Uh, one with Dr. Zambrennan, which was American political thought, and the other with uh, Dr. Avramenko, which was a close reading of Alexa de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. And it was basically during that class, immediately after that class, that I decided, uh, well, I first learned what political theory was, right? I had no idea going in, but once I had taken those classes, that was pretty much it for me. I wanted to be a political scientist, and more specifically, I wanted to be a political theorist. And I took an economics major because I was scared that that wouldn't work out for me, (laughs) and I thought, well, this seems more practical. That's that's not uh, to diminish economics or, or, or economics majors, but for me, that was sort of the purpose that that served. I wanted to be a political theorist from first semester of college. As a poli-sci and econ major, I took a similar calculus. So we think it's fair to say that there's a big gap between being an undergraduate political science student and a graduate student in political science that a lot of people don't fully understand. How would you describe the difference? And what does it mean for you to study political science at the graduate level in the context of your own research and teaching interests? I think the difference is primarily one of uh, specialization. So as an undergrad major in political science, you're going to take classes across all, uh, most if not all, of what we call the subfields in political science, American politics, comparative politics, IR, international relations, political theory, 
and perhaps also a methods course. In fact, you'll almost certainly take something like uh, political statistics or political numbers. So it's a very broad uh, major in, in a good way. Um, and you can focus, you know, you can um, privilege political theory classes as I did, or you can privilege uh, the other subfields uh, if that interests you. Uh, but it keeps you broad. And when you go to grad school, and this is probably true of any field you go into, but when you go to grad school in political science, you immediately specialize. You specialize in terms of, you know, finally picking a subfield. And yes, everyone, at least in here at UW, in political science has a secondary subfield, but you really focus on your main subfield. Um, and even then, you further focus on the topic you want to study, uh, at least by the time you start writing your dissertation, and uh, you're getting uh, even more specific as to your methods and things like that. So I'd say the main difference is one of specialization. Undergrad major is broad, you know, graduate school, you're still expected to be fluent in uh, all the subfields, um, but you, you specialize. And then the other difference is um, moving from being a educated consumer of political science, consumer is not a great word, an educated reader of political science scholarship to being a political science scholar yourself. And also not a great word, but producing political science research. So specializing and then not only being a good reader, but now being the person uh, writing the readings, as it were. One other follow-up that I have. So because a lot of the audience is recent graduates or people later in their political science undergrad degrees who are looking at potentially going to grad school, Mm -hmm. did you get any advice in terms of how you should go about narrowing down what area of specialization you would take in grad school, or did you know that when you were applying already? So a great thing to do if you're an undergraduate here and you're interested in going to grad school is writing a senior thesis. Because one, you're basically doing what you will be doing in grad school, which is that producing the research part of things. But two, it helps you kind of figure out, okay, what am I interested in? You know, senior thesis is a year-long project. A dissertation will be a multi-year project. So you got to find a topic that can sustain you. So my advice would be, Do something like that. Try to write a senior thesis. Find a topic that interests you. And then let that be your guide when applying to graduate programs. You know, find programs that will fit with your interests or support your interests. And there is considerable diversity in graduate programs, both in the kinds of methods they use, even within a certain subfield, and in the topics that the faculty there specialize in. So transitioning over to your coursework in um, the course you teach in environmental political thought, what is environmental political theory as you conceptualize it in your course about the topic? How is it constructed and who participates in this idea? Yeah, uh, that's a question I'm still trying to figure out. Uh, It's sort of the reason I taught the course, right? Let's teach a course called environmental political thought and perhaps somewhere along the way uh, we'll figure out what exactly that means. I think there are at least three possible meanings. They overlap. I tend to privilege one. So we could think of environmental political theory as essentially taking political theory ideas or the ideas that political theorists tend to discuss, such as, I mean, there are a bevy, right? Uh, sovereignty, freedom, equality, power, you know, pick your, pick your political idea. We could take those ideas and essentially environmentalize them or green them, right? Apply them to or apply them in environmental contexts. That would be one definition of environmental political theory, and it's a perfectly serviceable one. Another definition, and I distinguish this with my students on the first day of class, another distinction would be a burgeoning field that's been growing in the past 
couple decades that calls itself environmental political theory, who there may be doing what I just described, taking political theory concepts and applying them uh, to the environment, uh, but they're also sort of developing environmental political theory concepts on their own. What I do, and this is why I call the class uh, environmental political thought instead of environmental political theory, which might sound you know, like a small semantic difference, but it's important. What I want the class to be about is uh, the students and I thinking the environment politically and then thinking politics environmentally. And I also don't really know what that means, but I think that's sort of the motivation of the class, which is to think about environmental pl political thought as something we do as opposed to just something we read. Like it's an, it's an action, not an object, not a canon. Going off of your couple of different definitions of environmental political theory, what does that mean to you? And also what does environmental political thought mean to you? As you mentioned, there's mm -hmm. a difference. I think a good place to start is with what do we mean by the environment? And when we think the environment politically, which was one valence of how I'm trying to think about environmental political thought, one thing that we're doing is trying to define the environment. Like if we think of politics, generally speaking, as a you know, collective endeavor after a, a public or a common good, well, how we define the environment, how we see it and understand it, might be one of those things. So I, and again, this is still something we're working out, what is the environment? Uh, a provisional definition I have, uh, and I'm not saying this will be my final definition, uh, but I like to think of it now as the interface of the human and the non-human. This space where the human and the non-human meet and overlap and interact and, and cause and affect each other. So environmental political thought, uh, one way of thinking the environment politically would be to try to think about that interface or perhaps propose alternate definitions of the environment. And who participates in that idea? Like, who, who do you see as the actors that are doing environmental, political thought or theory? Or is it just academics? No, no, it's not just academics. It's, it's all of us all the time, and specifically the students in my class, right? Yes, we are reading texts in what might be called the canon of environmental political theory. Think here of Aldo Leopold's Sand, Co Sand County Almanac, specifically the essay The Land Ethic. We might be reading uh, uh, important essays in environmental ethics written by academics who rightfully so call themselves environmental uh, ethicists or environmental political thinkers or, or pick your label. But who participates in environmental political thought is, I think, all of us. And how do you think that different actors in environmental political thought interact with each other based on their own interpretation of, say, the environment, as everybody has different definitions. How do you think that those interact and influence how we make political change around the environment? I think, ideally, uh, these various people, these, in this case, students, but really anyone who wants to think the environment politically or think politics environmentally, hopefully they're engaging in as democratic a way as possible, right, where each of us sort of provides our definition and debates those definitions with others. Um, I think we probably live in a world, and this is true of you know not just environmental ideas, but but all ideas, uh, where you know a, a powerful few sort of construct what things mean. I would like to. This is one of the motivations for the course again to try to undo that by encouraging all of us to realize, hey, this thing we call the environment. Uh, we construct this. We can say what it is. Mm. It might be what, what I'm 
thinking of it as the interface of the human and the non-human, but there might be other perfectly viable ways of defining it, and we should we should talk about it. It's what we try to do every class period. That's sort of the hidden curriculum, right? Is trying to get the students to do that every time we meet. We're in this unit now, the third and final unit of the course, where we're focusing on environmental praxis, which is just uh, action informed by theory. So the first two units, we're focusing on different environmental, political relationships and frameworks. But this last unit is all about taking those ideas and sort of applying them to things you can do in the real world. So the two, um, excuse me, three class periods we've had so far on different forms of praxis have been uh, farming or gardening, and we had a, a local agriculturalist and entrepreneur come in and, and talk to the students about what uh, he does in those spaces. Farming and gardening, uh, eating, like eating is something we all do, and it's an, an environment, or it can be an environmental political action. Uh, you can eat environmentally. Um, and then just this last week, we had a, a student, a graduate student here from the Nelson Institute come in and talk about his work as a conservationist, so conserving as an activity. So again, the what is environmental political theory? What does it mean to think the environment politically is still a work in progress? I think it resists final definition. But one of many cool things that have happened in the course uh, because of the students and their thinking and learning has been watching them take these ideas that they've become equipped with and applying them to the real world. So let's dive deeper into um, some of the four frameworks of environmental political thought that you engage with in your course, both how you define them and how they might influence specific environmental political issues. So the four frameworks, as we have listed down here, is environmental democracy, environmental justice, the Anthropocene, and indigeneity. Yeah. I'll try my best. And yeah. um, so how do you define those and how do those in um, frameworks influence specific environmental political issues and policy? Yeah. So uh, first, um, there are many frameworks we could have studied in this course. I chose these four, environmental democracy, environmental justice, Anthropocene, and indigeneity, uh, because I think they're sort of topical or in vogue right now, where this class taught 10 years ago, not uh, far off from when I actually took an environmental political theory class as an undergrad. The frameworks that we might have studied would have perhaps been something like sustainability, um, feminism, environmental feminism, or something like that. Not to say that those are unimportant or off the table, but I see these four as sort of the, the main ones right now. So you mentioned, you know, how can we use these frameworks to think about a particular issue? I've given this some thought. So, uh, for example, let's take the construction of line three, which is this, uh, you, you might already know about it, you might in fact know more than me, but uh, it's a, a pipeline for oil sand that runs from uh, Alberta, Canada to uh, actually Superior, Wisconsin, running through Minnesota and uh, running through and around uh, Anishinaabe reservations and treaty territory. Now, there's already one pipeline that exists, but they're uh, proposing to build another one that can uh, carry even more oil, and it has a, a different route. Um, and so in uh, thinking about that um, example, we might apply these four frameworks. So environmental democracy essentially asks, whose interests should we uh, account for in politics? Is it just humans? Is it just present humans? Or should we also include future humans? Should we also include non-humans? Should we include present, uh, 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 future non-humans? Um, and different um, 
environmental uh, thinkers have different ways of conceptualizing that, different uh, ideas of how we can listen for or account for non-humans and future humans. Environmental justice is a related idea related to environmental democracy, and it's a multifaceted idea that has evolved a lot over the past 50 years. Um, but it essentially considers how do we distribute equitably different environmental harms, different environmental benefits, and sort of who is involved in environmental decision making, who has the responsibility to take environmental action. This is an especially important idea now when we're talking about climate adaptation and mitigation. Um, is it just to ask small countries that emit hardly any carbon to take as much responsibility as, say, the United States or China in uh, adapting to climate change? Environmental justice or certain arguments for it would say, no, but here's how we should think about that. Then the Anthropocene is an idea that, um, you know, I think many of us have heard. Uh, it's in the headlines and in popular discussion. It basically means the, that human activity is having an impact on the world, right? And, and at multiple scales, at all scales, from what's in the atmosphere to what's in the uh, bedrock to what's in the water. We sort of can't escape uh, and we can't undo uh, human impacts. The Anthropocene as a political idea sort of takes up that fact uh, established by geographers around the year 2000 and says, okay, how should we think about politics and human activity in light of this? Then there are plenty of critiques of the Anthropocene, which say, well, well, hold on. It's not humans as a species that have caused these massive detrimental effects. It's actually capitalists in the global north, or it's actually uh, the history of plantation economies and, and culture that have caused this. And then finally, uh, indigeneity uh, is this idea that, I mean, also can mean many things, but I think in the class we use it to think about the effects of uh, settler colonialism on First Nations people, indigenous people, uh, and how also perhaps the, the worldviews, uh, we might even say philosophies of certain indigenous people might reshape the way we think about the environment and environmental politics. Okay, so those are the four frameworks. Now, I gave that example of line three, right? I think we can uh, potentially use these frameworks to think about something like an oil pipeline. So, you know, uh, in terms of environmental democracy, when we're proposing this thing, when we're building this thing, whose interests are we accounting for, right? And should we be bringing more interest to the table? Might a landscape have a certain interest in not having a pipeline uh, run over it or run through it just as much as human beings might have an interest in not having a pipeline in their backyard or something like that. Might future humans have a certain interest, perhaps similar to, perhaps different from current humans, in the existence or non-existence of this pipeline? That's environmental democracy. Environmental justice might mean, okay, who is going to be harmed by a potential spill? Uh, is it going to be uh, poor people? Is it going to be wealthy people? Is it going to be indigenous people? Is it going to be people of color? Uh, that's where environmental justice might come in. The Anthropocene, I mean, that's written all over the pipeline, right? I mean, how many more uh, tons of carbon are going to be emitted into the atmosphere because of using the oil that it's going to transmit? Uh, and we could think of the pipeline in many different ways through the Anthropocene. And then indigeneity. Um, you know, we don't just, it's not just a question here of like effects of the pipeline on the atmosphere or on the natural world, but it's, you know, particularly affecting perhaps indigenous people. In this case, the, the pipeline does run through 
Indigenous Territory Anishinaabe reservations. So we can use each of these frameworks and we can use them together or separately to think about something like a pipeline or really any other thing in the environment thing affecting the environment. So we've been talking about how environmental changes by humans is somewhat inherently political or has been entangled with politics for generations. But let's talk for a minute about the recent decades in which it's become a partisan issue as well in politics. So we're wondering about your thoughts on why this has happened and perhaps any pathways that might help to disentangle partisanship from environmental thinking. Well, I'm not an expert on why this has happened. I'm not an expert, say, on the uh, political history of environmentalism in the United States, although I would expect that the partisan cleavages we see probably have a lot to do with sort of whose whose interests are served and whose economical interests are hindered by environmental policy, right? Uh, So a, a party, and both of them have been, but a party that is, say, uh, supported by uh, big oil or the fossil fuel industry uh, might frame in the environment and environmental action in a certain way. Right. Okay. Again, I'm not an expert on that. But I've been thinking about your question of, like, how do we disentangle partisanship from environmental thinking? And it's a big question. It requires a big answer. Uh, and it requires a, a bigger brain than mine to do it. So I'm going to resort to the recently... Uh, deceased uh, thinker uh, Bruno Latour uh, to try to help us out here. So I'm going to give a gloss of his thought and you can tell me if this is compelling or not. So Latour in his last book, Down to Earth, argues that both the political right and the political left have unmoored us from what he calls the terrestrial or what we might just call for now the, the earth beneath our feet and the places that we find ourselves, the real places where we live. The right does this, Latour argues, by projecting a vision of an entirely isolated America uh, with impermeable borders cut off from the rest of the world, pursuing its own destiny alone. The left unmoors us from the terrestrial or the the actual places where we find ourselves uh, in a different way. And it's by projecting a vision of political and economic cosmopolitanism, which insists that what matters is not the nation state or anything local, but rather the globe. So... Latour would say both of these, the right's vision of sort of like extreme isolation and the the left's vision of the globe, uh, they actually distract their adherents from a politics of a specific, again, he calls it terrestrial or terrain, which we can understand as the place where we find ourselves, the earth beneath our feet, but not just the earth in terms of soil, but also like the specific watersheds where we live or the weather patterns or the species habitats that surround us and the inflow and outflow of resources that construct uh, a certain place, many of which might extend beyond artificial political boundaries uh, and might even be uh, potentially global, uh, but global in a more concrete and real sense than either the right or the left can imagine. So here's an example. Uh, Think of a particular resource flow, lithium being mined in Bolivia, which uh, is used to power batteries built in China, which are then installed in electric vehicles that are used here in Madison, Wisconsin. These are links in a chain, a a real chain of resources that can engender all sorts of uh, material and social byproducts along the way, and which should be the real site of sort of our political attention and energy, uh, and not the sort of 
unmoored, detached, fictional visions that either the right or the left provide us. So I think if we're going to follow the tour here, when it comes to disentangling partisanship from environmental thinking, I think we need to sort of push back upon and, and even reject the visions of the world and the visions of the, or, or the obscured visions of the environment that we get from the right and the left, uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats, and try to foment politics around like the, the places where we actually are, the watersheds, the species, the weather even, uh, the resource inflows and outflows. Compelling to you? I mean, what do you think? <laughs> could, that, could that somehow provide like a new space for environmental politics to happen that is not so obscured by partisanship? I think that's really interesting, that idea of you have to push past that, like you said, that fictional idea, this big grandiose idea of the environment at large and using it almost as a shorthand for linking to partisan ideas and instead just looking at a concrete example of this is what's happening in the environment right now and how it's affecting you personally or Mm -hmm. just a very concrete idea of how it's affecting something in the world that is concrete and happening right now. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a great way of getting past that shorthand isn't even the right word, that almost like trigger word Mm -hmm. for immediately enacting a partisan idea. Yeah, a trigger word that's not connected to anything real or only very distantly connected, right? And that's the the title of Latour's book is Down to Earth. Like we need to bring our politics down to earth Mm -hmm. to the real like material situation in which we find ourselves. And if we find it to be unjust, we don't just accept that, but we create a politics that might make it more just, right? So how would that theory fit into the context of like what's going on right now with kind of big global pushes toward multi-country environmental policy agreements or like the UN climate summits that are happening, like more of a global view on what we should do collectively to change the environmental situation? Do you think that this theory at least conflicts with prioritizing that? I think uh, possibly yes and possibly no. Those agreements between nations and these, uh, you know, global uh, colloquia, they might be a way of highlighting the very real material relationships between countries, large and small, right? Where we get our resources from, who is affected by the use of these resources. I think Latour would say, great, let's, let's focus on those things. Because again, the terrestrial or the terrain is not just, you know, the, the land and, and what you see outside your window, but it's sort of everything that your consumption and production is related to, which might be on the other side of the world. He's not opposed to that way of thinking. Mm. What I think he would be skeptical of would be this idea that sort of globalism in general might just solve the problem, right? Like as long as uh, global elites are talking, well, then we're we're moving in the right direction. Mm. I I think he would say, I think he'd be skeptical of that. I think he'd say, well, we need to really think about what they're talking about. Are they talking about the right things? So let's dive a little bit more into your dissertation entitled Terror Politics, Debating the Land with American Political Thought. Can you tell us more about the main research questions or puzzles that you're engaging in that research and what you hope to argue? So my project begins with the question, what is land? And then uh, pivots to argue quite quickly after that, that we can't actually answer this question without drawing upon an assemblage of concepts and logics and imaginaries that shape the meaning of land in any given locale. So it's really the dissertation is uh, an exploration of what are we talking about when we talk about land. In each of my chapters, uh, my provisional chapters, I examine a thinker from the margins of American political thought, margins both spatial and otherwise, and I contrast that thinker's construction of land 
with uh, the construction of land that I think we can find in a contemporary piece of legislation. So in my first chapter, I read the autobiography of Black Hawk, a 19th century Sauk war leader, alongside the 1804 treaty that dispossessed the Sauk and Meskwaki of their lands and to which Black Hawk objects in, in his autobiography. Tracing two different conceptions of land in those two texts by looking at the concepts, logics, and imaginaries that each draws on. Uh, second chapter, I plan to read Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House on the Prairie novels alongside the Homestead Act of 1862 to do the exact same thing. What assemblage of ideas are Wilder versus the Homestead Act drawing on to, to think the meaning of land. And then in my third chapter, which I really haven't scratched the surface on yet, but I intend to put the writings of Zikala Shah, who is a, a late 19th, early 20th century Lakota writer and activist. I didn't intend to put her writings in conversation with the Dawes Act of 1887, or what's also known as the Allotment Act, which turned Indian reservations into private property and, and again dispossessed Native Americans of the little land that uh, remained with them, and perhaps also the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934, which is the result of Zikala Shah and a number of other indigenous activists' uh, work to try to re-empower tribes. Is the land back movement part of kind of that analysis as well? I think so. Um, my hope would be that, um, you know, by presenting these different ways of thinking about land without necessarily saying this one's right or this one's wrong, but by presenting them in a way that gives us options for thinking about land and highlights the different ideas that are behind any conception of land, we might be able to inform movements like the land back movement. Again, not necessarily directing them one way or another. I don't think that should be any theorist's job, but instead providing ideas for people to consider and, and play with and fight with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I guess the other question that I have is like, how do we reckon with the fact that corporations are mostly responsible for emissions right now right. in a capitalist society, but we're trying to move away from that idea of the environment being a commodity in the context of knowing that we probably won't be able to fully move away from big corporations mm -hmm. using up a lot of resources at this point. Yeah, it's hard. Um, you know, a lot of times in the class, in the EPT class, we'll come to a point where we all just collectively sort of shrug our shoulders and say, well, um, you know, it's really hard to get outside liberal colonial capitalism, right? And uh, perhaps we can never do it. And like, you know, Amazon's just going to rule our lives or you know, insert corporation here, yeah. right? Um, because that's, this is how we live now. So I think the key becomes, um, not that I am opposed to efforts to uh, potentially overthrow the entire system, but uh, finding ways where we might resist and sort of survive within the system, both by fighting back and participating in it, perhaps in a sort of resisting way. It's incredibly vague. Right. It doesn't tell us exactly what to do, but I think it's maybe the right mindset because the, other, the alternative is to just, you know, as we all do sometimes, shrug our shoulders and say, what are you going to do? You know, I don't know. I think it's about sort of finding the uh, there's a thinker and I'm going to forget her name, but finding like the leverage point in a system where you can make a difference without being overwhelmed by the fact that the system is and will always be much bigger than you. Yeah. 
that sh- I've taken probably half a dozen environmental studies classes since I've been here, and that collective like shrug of your shoulders at the end of the semester or something. I feel like I had in every single class where it was just like, yeah. well, maybe can we actually do anything about this? But then yeah. you just like have to like look towards like what can you do throughout I the rest know. of your life and the things you have to think about. And that will inevitably happen to some extent in the course I'm teaching because this is this is where we're at, right? But my and this is why I end with praxis or things people can actually do. And the final assessment is a plan. So we're talking about how do you set a goal? How do you create steps for that goal? How do you, you know, organize timelines and milestones to help you progress towards that goal? Students have to come up with three environmental political goals they personally want to achieve. But the whole idea is to try to avoid that shrugging of shoulders and say, that's all fine in theory, but what can you do? And instead say, well, it might not be much, but here's what I can do, right? I can try to grow some of my food, even though I'm you know, probably going to get most of it from the grocery store. Uh, I can you know, try to travel less or, or drive less or travel in different ways. And yet I kind of recoil at that because it, it is so individualizing. I think the mindset of being a little bit more optimistic and at least feeling like you can yes. do something small is better than feeling so pessimistic about how big the system is, yeah. even if it is in an individualized way. Yeah. And even though I uh, accept the point that we shouldn't be putting uh, all or most of the burden on individuals when so much of the harm is caused by corporations and systems. In the end, action is individual, even when it's happening collective. That collective is composed of individuals. So yeah. to the extent that individuals can change their mind, uh, think and act differently, that's probably the place to start. Yeah, yeah. there is that argument that it's as corporations are the largest emitters they should be the ones making the most change Mm -hmm. and in theory yes that's true but Mm -hmm. i think that once individuals start to change their behavior then companies follow to pursue that individual behavior if individual if there's a demand then for environmental change that's when corporations will change yeah yeah vote with your feet throw a wrench in the system we have a day on monkey wrenching which if you're i don't know if you're familiar with that term but it's basically light criminal activity, you know, trying to disrupt a harmful system, mm-hmm. right? Usually criminal activity, and, and I'm doing air quotes here, <laughs> I want to be very clear about that, criminal activity that announces itself and says, you know, hey, we're protesting here, we realize that perhaps we're trespassing, we realize we're perhaps violating property, but like, this is kind of the reason we're doing it. And along the way, you also stop a forest from being cut down, or you stop a whale from being killed or something like that. That kind of stuff is uh, very intriguing. And that might be an example of the sort of resistance that we need to adopt. Like, bow with your feet, uh, shop in better places, but also, you know, thumb your nose in power a little bit. Make a mess. Okay, so uh, I am realizing that we're getting close to time here, and of course we want to be respectful of your time. For our listeners who might be debating grad school versus seeking jobs immediately Mm -hmm. in policy or pursuing other interests, Mm -hmm. in your experience... What kind of students would you suggest grad school would be a good path? Hmm. In my in my experience, which of course is is only my own, so I don't want this to be a sort of an answer for everyone. But I think if you're going to go to grad school, especially if you're going to go to grad school with the intention of like uh, being an academic, um, you have to you gotta love school because you're never going to leave it. Even when you're done with your program, you're going to be working for a school and you're going to be doing scholarly things um so you got to be able to love your research hopefully eventually love teaching if that ends up being your path 
love love reading and writing and basically doing homework all the time what we call <laughs> homework right but it ends up being more than that of course so that has to be that has to be number one number two and i'm very aware of this is grad school might not be possible for many people for example who have debt right and need to start paying that off right away because being in grad school is not very lucrative right and that's unfortunate i think things are being done to hopefully change this and make grad school a less precarious experience for a lot of students uh, we see for example what's going on in the california system right now with uh, graduate students trying to unionize uh, and get the pay raises they deserve that doesn't happen nearly enough so i think that's another consideration people have to be aware of and it's it's not right that it is easier for some people to do this and and not others but it is a reality those would be my two main things i mean be ready to never really leave school and be aware that it can be a precarious existence so to end on a fun question on the same note of loving school what is your favorite place on or around campus to get studying and class prep and dissertation writing done yeah so uh several answers one um it's sort of so boring but the the high top tables in college library and you go in college library you turn to the right and instead of turning left into the open book cafe there's just those uh high top tables there that's where i spend most of my time I don't know why, like, sort of the din of conversation is preferable to silence for me, and that's where I do a lot of my work. When I was an undergrad, uh, the Open Book Cafe was the place to be, with the booths and the hummus and pita bread that I ate an ungodly amount of. So that would be another place I'd recommend. And then another place I loved in undergrad, off campus, is um, Zuzu Cafe, down by the Henry Vilas Zoo on uh, Drake and Randall, I think. But yeah, really amazing North African cuisine and friendly people and cool space. Final question for you. What's your favorite outdoor space to visit either in Dane County or around? Love the Arboretum. Always love the Arboretum. Um, It's called uh, Indian Lake County Park in Dane County, sort of on the way to Wanakee. It's a great place to hike, sort of a lesser-known spot, and, I mean, in general, Dane County. Hiking and, out, and outdoorsing is really good. Yeah. These, are our, these are our terrains. This is our terrestrial. We should build politics around them, right? <laughs> good note to end on. Thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciated it. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.